So this last chunk of Romans 8, Paul is telling us you can face anything with confidence because you are already secure in Jesus. And as usual, there's three kind of ways we're going to approach that. The first is our insecurities come from building on shaky foundations. Second point, our security comes from building on a solid foundation. And suffering is what reveals what kind of foundation we're actually uh, living on or, or resting the weight of your life on. Make sense? This is the word of the Lord. This is the word that gets you, that understands you, that speaks to you tonight, wherever you are. Paul is saying, in response to everything he said up to this point in Romans 8, uh, in everything we've talked about, he says, what shall we say in response to the whole semester and last fall? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If it's God who justifies, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, and, and more than that, who was raised up to life, he is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in everything, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with you real quick. Jesus, we thank you that this is the truth. We pray that you'd help us to believe it's the truth. Believe it not just in our heads, but all the way down to our bones so that we feel even that it's true and know that it's true because you've said it is. We ask this in your name and pray for your presence tonight. Amen. So it was the night before Anna and I were going to start a cross-country drive back to Philadelphia where I had to report for my last year of seminary. In 12 hours, I would be getting up, load, or finishing loading up our Penske moving truck, and we would be driving through Kansas all the way back to Philadelphia. The problem was, 12 hours before we departed, I didn't have an address to put into our GPS because we didn't have a place to live. Uh, we'd been looking for about probably about a month and ha even had our friends in, Philly, in uh, Philadelphia. They would go look at places for us and be like, you don't want to live there or you do want to live there. And we'd try to get the place and it was already gone by the time we called. And uh, so long story short, for about a month, we've been coming up empty on a place to live. And uh, about I had just picked up the moving truck the night before we were going to leave the following morning. And I get a call from one of my best friends. And Chris says, hey, dude, why didn't, you, uh, why didn't you sign the lease of the house that's open two doors down from us? And he's like, yeah, dude, I called the landlady tonight. She said it's still available. I called the landlady immediately. She said, as long as you wire us the money tomorrow, we'll let you kind of sign the lease over the phone. So two days later, we pull up to West Philly, 827 South 48th Street. And... Uh, we are seeing this place for the first time. All that we know about it so far is a picture that we got sent and what Chris and Bonnie have told us about it. 
And when you hear apartment in West Philly, don't imagine like the Grove or some apartment complex here. It's like a hundred year old row home that they have kind of blocked off into little rooms and probably like, we get there and Anna and I move in and we start uh, living there for that last year and um, things begin to happen. Little things weren't that big, like the plaster's cracking in some places and so I go get some sheetrock mud and kind of fix it up so it looks nice again and we put a picture over it. And then every, we noticed every time it rains, which is a lot in Philadelphia, the front windows were just pouring water into the cabinets below, which is unfortunately where we kept all of our books. And so we found out because we went and looked there one day and our books were like sponges and like mold was growing on some of them. And so I put all of our remaining books in trash bags and that's what kept the water off of them when it rained really bad. But then one night, this happened. Um, we woke up to the sound of drips. Now, we're heavy sleepers. So loud that we woke up to it and turned on the lights at like 3 in the morning and we're looking at the something coming through from our neighbor's apartment above us and it's brown and it smells like what you don't want it to smell like at 3 in the morning when it's dripping on your bed. And uh, so we have a little freak out moment. We call our landlady first thing the next morning and long story short, they find out Thankfully, it's not what we feared it was. It was rusty, moldy radiator water that was leaking out of the guy's radiator from above us. But all of those, uh, all of those problems, the cracked foundation, the windows that were kind of askew, the leak, the brown stuff coming out of the ceiling onto our bed, none of that, those were all symptoms of a much bigger problem because when you went into the basement of this place, uh, you're like, whoa, we need to move out of here soon because when you got into the basement of this 100-year-old row home where we did our laundry every week, you could like push on the brick foundation and the brick would fall out and like dust would come out. It was that old. The foundation was like leaning. The house was obviously shifting a little bit, which was causing all of these problems above. The plumbing, the radiator lines were getting knocked out of whack. That's why they were leaking. The plaster was shifting as the house settled. That's why it was cracking. The shingles were pulling apart as the foundation gave way. That's why it was leaking. And so the problem wasn't all these symptomatic things that I spent an entire year trying to fix all the time. I could have spent the next 10 years trying to fix that, and all that would have happened is they'd come back and back and back. Uh, the insecure foundation is what was causing all the problems. Now, until you fix that foundation, uh, you, you're going to waste your life trying to make repairs on the house. Now, here's the thing, why I'm telling you this story. I think this is a good picture of what our lives are like. Uh, we oftentimes spend a lot of time fixing little surface fractures, cracking stuff, inconvenient, frustrating things in our lives, relationships that are a little off, places where you feel like life's like dr draining out of you a little bit. And we go around, we spend most of our lives trying to patch that stuff up. Because we never connect it back to what's going on in the basement, which is the foundation is crumbling. The foundation cannot support the weight of the house. It cannot support the weight of our lives. Uh, and so kind of we're not in on the joke. We go around patching and fixing all of this stuff, not realizing something's causing it. Um, something's causing all of these things. And so this is actually what the, uh, the first point is, is that insecurities in our lives or insecurities in houses come from shaky foundations. They come from building on a shaky, unstable foundation. 
Uh, and so, like I was saying, I think we have built our lives uh, on shaky places, and uh, we give our attention to fixing these little things. Now, what foundations do we build on? Let's, let's just skip to the chase, and I'll tell you right now. If you want to know in your mind, what's the foundation that I tend to build on, to hold up my life, to keep it from falling down? It's the place you feel most insecure. That's where you are resting the weight of your life. And so it could be everything from um, body image stuff, like I'm most insecure about the way I look or the way I feel, all the way to I'm most insecure about what other people think about me, their opinions of me. Uh, or it could be uh, what the other gender thinks about me. Do I catch their attention when I walk down the mall? Um, do guys turn their heads? Do girls turn their heads? If that's what validates you, if that's what tells you that you matter, that you're worth, that you're worthy, um, it could be your schedule. It could be life is perfect when your schedule's open, but when anything gets shaky there, you've got to cancel everything, retreat from people, from God, from church, and kind of go fix the foundation because life is shaking. Those are the foundations uh, that I'm talking about. And so, what are we to do? If all of our lives, and all of us in the room, myself included, have cracks in the wall, leaks, brown stuff, whatever, happening in our lives, and do you, what do you do to try to fix it? Because sometimes what we do, these little surface fixes, actually makes the problem worse. For instance, if it's kind of the attention from the other gender that is what you've built your life upon, what that means is, that's where you're most insecure, you're most kind of living in slavery. And so when you don't get attention, uh, it's devastating to you. And you either kind of go in hiding, um, or you have to win that attention. There's different ways that each of us does this, but at some level, both guys and girls, some of us will, you'll pursue kind of hooking up, sleeping together, whatever, to secure another person's attention. Because that's what you've learned consistently gets their attention. And so that's your attempt to surface repair a fracture that's coming from a foundation that's going to implode with you in the house. And so we try to fix those things. Um, it could be uh, opinions of other people. When we are kind of seen as awesome, when people are singing our praises, life is awesome. But when someone stops singing your praise, they're not a great friend anymore. Or worse, if they criticize you, they're an enemy. And we have to neutralize the threat. And so we, we find some way to patch over that repair without realizing that the reason this issue keeps coming up over and over and over again my entire life is because I've built my house on sand. And it can't support the weight of my life, my hopes, my desires, my soul, even though I want it to. And so my, life, my, my house, my life is kind of sinking into the sand and everything's cracking apart. So if the diagnosis fits you, the Bible assumes this fits you, assumes it fits me. What are we to do? If our insecurities, the places you are most insecurity, insecure, come from shaky foundations, what do we do? Well, if you saw 827 South 48th Street, you would never try to repair that foundation. Because as soon as you tried to get down there and do any work, the whole house would fall in on top of you. Because like I said, you push a brick, Dust comes out. I don't know how the thing was holding up, but that's what it looked like. And so you can't just go, f the answer isn't just that you go fix the foundation. 
The answer, the, the solution to that is you have to move out. You've got to find a sturdier foundation. And that's what Paul begins to talk about and where we'll kind of look close, more closely at the passage. Where he says, our second point, that our security comes from building on a solid foundation. Be careful hearing me say that, though. Let me say that again because I don't want you to mishear me. The point is our security comes uh, from our lives resting on a solid foundation. You might be tempted to hear what I just said and say, okay, Paul is saying and Ben is saying, I shouldn't be building my house on all these uh, shaky places. I should go build my house on Jesus. I'm going to go do that. That's not what this passage says. And if you hear me say that, you're getting a dinky little message tonight, a dinky little gospel, because that's it's not the gospel. The gospel is, if you're in Jesus and alive, God has already built your house and replanted your life on the solid rock of Jesus. He's already moved you. That's kind of where you are. Just like he took you out of that old family of origin we talked about a few weeks ago and planted you in his family, uh, so also he takes you up out of that shaky foundation, that house that's going to implode like Peter read earlier from Matthew. He takes you out of that and he puts you in this rock-solid house built on a massive foundation. We're talking 10-foot thick concrete, reinforced, high density, indestructible, impenetrable foundation, unshakable. So Paul's not telling you to go build your house Paul is saying, this is your house. This is where your life is built. If God has come to you and made you alive. And so what difference does it make if this is supposed to be something you go and do? Or if this is something that's already true? Well, if it's something that's already true, what it means is that we have a house that is solid, that is secure. That frees us from all of this kind of walking around repairing all of, our, all of our little insecurities. The problem is we just do a lot of time in all of these other little houses around town. It's like we hang out in these other places, uh, not knowing that we actually have a solid foundation uh, in Jesus. Uh, and so here's what I want you to, maybe this is one, one of the only things you remember. What, where are you most insecure? Maybe I didn't mention what it is for you. Consider the places you are most insecure as eviction notices from your Heavenly Father who is telling you the building you are in, the life that you have kind of made for yourself, the foundations that you are looking to hold you up are failing and falling. And so wherever it is for you, if it's academically, if it's insecurity as a small group leader, will people think I'm awesome and wise or whatever? Whatever it is, Consider that place as having this big orange house condemned notice on it because God loves you and cares for you and doesn't want you to be in houses that are imploding because they can't stay standing. And so those places can be kind of your divine eviction notices to flee out of that house back to where you belong, which is in a solid footing in Jesus. Now here's where Paul begins to describe. He takes you down to the basement he says, hey, let's start pushing on these walls. Let's start taking the sledgehammer to, these, to this concrete to see if it gets away. Here's how he does it. He asks you and me five questions. 
Now, why didn't he just bullet point this thing? Hey, you have a solid foundation in Jesus. Here's five reasons. Bam, 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 bam. Was that five bams? I don't know. Maybe four. <laughs> we'll edit it later in the audio recording. Um, here's what he does. Here's why he asked you the question. Five questions. Because I think if he just listed bullet points, bam, 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 you would, you and I would just kind of speed past it. Oh, I've heard this before. That's the gospel. Oh, I'm so thankful for the gospel. And you drive right past it. So Paul kind of reverses tactics, and now he's going to ask you questions and invite you into these questions so that you kind of put your blinker on and you pull into these questions and you pull over and you take in the view. And you kind of get out of your car and you walk around and you start to say, oh, that's actually not a rhetorical question. Paul is really asking you to ask these questions. He says it will have a dramatic impact on your confidence in life, your surety in the gospel, your joy, and your love for God. So here's where he asks. The first question is a question about God's power. He says, hey, if God is for you, remind me who it could be that's going to be against you in a way that actually matters. There's three, three emphases of this question. If God is for you, who could be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? This is the living, almighty God, your creator, your judge, your provider, your maker, your sustainer, your father. The Holy One, the Righteous One, the All-Powerful One, the Eternal One that never had a start date, never has an end date. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's a question he wants you to come into and ask and let it linger until answers start coming out. One answer that might come out is he said, well, God could be for me, but man could be against me. Remember the psalm, it says, who is man? Uh, and then it says, uh, who is man and what can man do to me? David's kind of asking this question, why am I so afraid of people, people's opinions, whether they accept me or reject me or judge me? So you might be thinking, well, God is for me, but if this group of people that I really want to like me and think I'm awesome, if they're against me, then I don't really have that much. Or we might say that uh, maybe the employer that you're trying to get the internship for, if they're not for you, then you really don't have that much. But he calls you back to remember, who are we talking about here? Who is an employer compared to Almighty God who you will stand before? Who you know? Who made you? Who redeems you? Um, who, is, who, are, who are other people that were trying to impress and jockey for their temporary favor? Who are they compared to God? Now, God is for you. If he's for you, if he is an advocate for you, a defender of you, who can be against you? If he's committed to your best interest, if he's committed to you thriving, prospering, flourishing, who can be against you? Who can thwart him in that? Who can get last say other than him? Nobody can get last say other than God if he's for you. He's the one who Paul says down here in, this, in these verses that Jesus himself is actually, you want to know what he's doing right now? He's praying for you. 
Jesus is interceding for you. Um, that's what it means that God is for you. And what does it mean that God is for you? You with your past, you with your habitual struggles, you with the shameful stuff you've never told anybody else. God is for you because of what he's done in Jesus. Who can be against you? He goes on, the second question. He who didn't spare his own son, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give you everything? Everything that you're needful of. This is arithmetic. He's saying, if God gave you a hundred, will he not give you one? If God gave you a trillion, will he, what's one? If God gave you something of infinite value to himself, the eternal son of God who is God, who is fully divine, if he gave, he did not spare Jesus for your sake, what's a loaf of bread? What's a little substance here? What's a little provision there for him? Of course. Paul's like, do the math. Think about a mentor or some, like one of your parents maybe. They have given you their lives. Aren't those people easier to ask if you need a ride to the store one day? You get a flat tire? Those are the people you call. Because you're not worried about inconveniencing them. Because you've already seen them give you all of their lives. So those are the people you call. God has already given you all of himself. He's the one we run to without worrying if we're inconveniencing him or bothering him. The third question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect or his chosen ones? If God's the one who judges, what prosecutor or what attorney is going to come into that courtroom and say, oh, I got some evidence here that God didn't know about. Let me show it to you and tell the courtroom. And you're sitting there shaking like a leaf in the wind. Oh, he didn't know about this. And now someone brought it to his attention. If the all-knowing, all-seeing God is the one who has said, you are clean, you are innocent, you are good, you are righteous, because you are in Jesus. What attorney is going to come after you? What prosecutor? What devil? What accuser? There is an accuser that comes after you. The Bible also says there's somebody else before the throne of God. His name is Satan, which is Hebrew for accuser, Satan. He is there all the time murdering you, gossiping about you, saying, did you see that? Did you see that? Crush him. And Jesus, the one who is on the throne, unlike the little poodle that the devil is before the throne yapping, the one who's sitting on the throne is actually advocating for you, praying for you, standing up for you. Why? Because you have his righteousness. That's what's happening in heaven right now. Who shall bring a charge against you if God is your judge and he has justified you? Who is there to condemn? You remember a couple of weeks ago, you can't tell a kid a monster's not under your bed. They're not going to believe you. You got to get under the bed and in the closet, show them. Uh, you remember how Jesus, in a sense, is the monster slayer. He is the one who has not just pushed condemnation away from Christians. He's the one who has made it extinct. Doesn't exist anymore. Condemnation for the people of God is as extinct as the dinosaurs are. They ain't coming back. You, you're not going to find them. You might find fossils of your condemnation, little signs and guilty feelings and emotions and stuff that linger from that, that remind you of that, but there's no life to it anymore. Jesus has taken it away. So Paul asks you, 
Who's there condemning you? Why go on with all of these guilty feelings? Why give thought to all of these condemning emotions if you're not condemned? Aren't we just reinforcing all of that? Aren't we just actually listening as if that were true when we know it's not true? Then it gets good. He comes back to ending with this question. Who shall separate us, the church, the people of God, from the love of God in Christ? You have answers for that. So does Paul. And so he starts listing all the things that you and I are thinking about when he says, what's going to separate me from the love of God in Christ? I have a lot of answers. Is time going to separate me from the love of God in Christ? Will I make it to the end? What about my habitual sin struggles? Is that going to separate me? Is that going to get up and get me one day and mean that I don't end up standing before God innocent and pure in Jesus? Or what about the particular kind of sin you struggle with? What about an abortion you had? What about same-sex attraction that you deal with? And you think that's the token thing that there is no grace for. There's no change for that. And so that's going to separate me from the love of God and Jesus. Where in the Bible does it say anything about token sins? Excluding you from the love and the reach of God? Paul says nothing will separate you Not time, not your struggles, not danger, not a sword, not famine, not persecution, distress, tribulation, or your own weakness. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. You're a conqueror. It's your identity now. Because you're connected to the conqueror. We're little weaklings, right? Let's be honest. But we are united, we're married, we are connected to at the hip a conqueror, the one who's killed death, sin, condemnation, the whole shebang. And so that's why we're not condemned anymore. We end here. So far, hopefully this is sounding good to you and hopeful and promising, but you might be thinking, but yeah, I still feel so insecure. I so feel, I I know that I should feel confident in the gospel, but I don't. Or I don't feel as confident as I want to. So what do I do? Well, Paul takes us there, thankfully, uh, towards the end of this. And it's our last point, that suffering, or you could even say experience, kind of going through the Christian life. Suffering or experience is what exposes the strength of the foundations that we're living on. And so suffering, actually, for the Christian, can increase your confidence in the sturdiness of Jesus as your foundation. So if you go back to verse 28, I didn't read it tonight, but verse 28, we know that all in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He doesn't say everything's good. He doesn't say God makes everything good. He says God is at work in all things for your good. If you read on, for your good means you becoming more and more like Jesus. God is using every detail in your life to make you more like Jesus, which means even suffering. Even to use Peter's language when he read Matthew, even floods, even winds that Jesus says are inevitable. The forecast for your future has a lot of sunshine in it, but it also has a lot of stormy days in it. Jesus says the wind is coming, the floods are coming. And why? Partly to expose the foundations. Because in that parable of the house built on the sand and the rock, they both look like awesome houses, right? They look like real estate you'd want to move into. But then the shaking, the shaking happens, the flood comes, and one falls before your eyes. And you're like, uh, I'll take that one. 
because it's on the solid rock. So the, the, the suffering actually exposes where we're living our lives. So even suffering with insecurity, how is God working in that for your good? Again, to show you the eviction notice, get out of the house. It's not, that's no place to live. There's no place to stay. How did Paul say these things? Is he just a super Christian? Do you feel like you'd have to be a super Christian overnight to be able to have confidence in this stuff in a way that affected you tomorrow? Here's where I want to wrap this up is to talk about Paul and a guy named Polycarp. Here's Paul's story. Paul didn't just say this stuff. He's like, ah, super spiritual guy. Here, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Paul had scars by the time he said this. Paul had been through hell and high water by the time he said this. Here's what he says in another letter to another church, 2 Corinthians. He says, I was in prison more than any of the other apostles. I was beaten almost to the point of death countless times. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That basic 40 lashes they thought would kill you, so they gave you 39 to keep you alive. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night, a day, adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, both in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all of that, I was under daily pressure for my anxiety for all of the churches that I'd established. When Paul tells you that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, you need to hear this coming from a seasoned, scarred, elder Christian. Not some little adolescent that's all hyped up or at a spiritual high. This man had been through it all. And looking back, he said, what Polycarp, a bishop, said a hundred years later when he was martyred, uh, the Christians were being persecuted because they wouldn't worship Caesar. Polycarp was taken into an arena uh, where this is the time when the lions were tearing Christians apart for the entertainment of the Romans. Polycarp was taken into the arena. He's about 86 years old at this point. He's a revered bishop of all these churches. And the MC at this event, this is recorded by many accounts, but also Christians at the time have left, left this historical account recorded for us. Polycarp's brought in and the guy says... Um, Polycarp, repent and deny Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp's response is this, still being spoken 2,000 years later. Polycarp says, 86 years and I have served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? I have been through it all. And he has done me no wrong. How can I turn on him? How can I have confidence in things like comfort or my life continuing or safety? I've seen it all. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Not persecution, not death, not principalities or authorities. This is the way God is growing your confidence in him. He is taking you through things that let you feel how strong, how sturdy, how faithful he is. That changes how you go through suffering. And if you don't know Jesus, you have to hear this. 
that for you, you can't own the promise. These are promises to the people of God. God invites you to come to Jesus, but until you do, nothing in your life is working for good. It's futile. Not just will something will separate you from the love of God in Christ, but you already are separated from the love of God in Christ. But God wouldn't bring you here tonight to parade before you again the good news of Jesus Christ if he didn't care, if he didn't want you to come and find refuge in a sturdier house. Let's pray that he would do that. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you will help us see these eviction notices by our insecurities and realize how we are building our lives and resting our hopes on things that cannot possibly support us. Help us to run away from those and to flee again to Jesus who is waiting for us, Jesus who is sturdy and strong. And I pray this uh, for those who know you and those who do not yet know you, that they would find refuge in you. We ask this all in his name.